All right, so this morning we're in Romans chapter 11, and we're going to start reading in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. O oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that um, I pray that you would just release my tongue and allow me to speak what's been prepared so that nothing can hinder you from speaking to your people this morning. Uh, I pray for this text and for the encouragement in it, and I ask that you would change lives through us, change our lives and then change lives through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the sermon is A Mystery. We're talking about a mystery today. Um, Paul begins by saying, I want to reveal a mystery to you, church in Rome, something that you don't know, perhaps, something that maybe you don't expect, that hasn't been revealed to everybody yet. It's a mystery. I'm going to reveal it to you, and there's a reason why he wants to reveal it to them. It's so that they won't be proud and wise in their own estimation. So, don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't be wise in your own estimation. An easier way of saying that, in other words, don't be proud. That's why Paul is writing this this morning. He's saying, I'm going to give you a mystery. I'm going to tell you something you might not know yet. And it's so that you won't be proud. You won't be, you won't be wise in your own estimation. You know, it's actually really easy to be wise in your own estimation. Do you know that? It's pretty easy for you to think that you're, that you're wise. I mean... You wouldn't have an opinion if you didn't think it was right, right? So you think you're right pretty much all the time, or most of the time you're pretty confident that the way you see things is right. So we're all pretty wise in our own eyes, right? It's pretty easy to think, I know stuff. And so Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be so confident in what you think. Don't be so wise in your own eyes. Don't be so proud. I'm going to share a mystery with you. He says, what is this mystery? Well, it has something to do with the hardening of Israel. The hardening itself isn't the mystery, though, because we've already been talking about that. Paul's already been writing about that for a couple of weeks now. Let's just review that real quick. Starting in the beginning of this chapter, in verse 1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? No. I'm just going to kind of summarize these. No. For I am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham. In the same way, then, there is also come to be at the present time a remnant. What then? In verse 7, what Israel is seeking and hasn't obtained, 
but those who were chosen obtained it. And then in verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And then in, uh, in verse 8, God gave them over, talking about the Jews, God gave them over to a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not. And verse 12, if their transgression is riches for the world, and if their rejection, in verse 15, if the rejection is a reconciliation of the world, so this whole thing about how um, the, there's been this hardening of Israel, they've rejected the gospel for the most part, but not all of them, but most of them have, that's not a mystery. It's not a mystery that only a small remnant of Jews are saved. It's not a mystery that most of them rejected God and they tried to pursue him by good works and not by faith in Jesus. It's not a mystery that these Jews were hardened and blinded. These are all things that Paul has taught about. These are all things that are from their Old Testament. These things aren't the mystery. So then in verse 25, when he says, I, want, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. What is that mystery? The mystery is that it is a partial hardening. From God's perspective, there's a timeline in all of this. And what Paul is saying is that the, the current state of things we're talking about, where there's only a couple of Jews saved, and most of them have rejected the Messiah, and there's all these Gentile believers, the church is mostly Gentiles with a few Jews, that current state is a temporary thing. It's not always going to be that way. It's partial. It's for a purpose. And he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This current state with a very small remnant of Jews that are saved, it's not going to always look that way. The church isn't going to look that way. That's the mystery. It's not going to be this way forever. So, um, and then he says in verse 26, something a little more mysterious, and so all Israel will be saved. And what does he mean by all Israel? He can't mean all Jewish citizens of the state of Israel, all ethnic Jews. He can't mean that because that would just contradict everything he was just writing about, if they're all going to be saved. So Paul right here isn't prophesying that every Jew, every like ethnical, ethnic Jew citizen of the state of Israel is going to be saved in the end. That's not what he's saying. Paul's been very clear about this and what he means. So for example, way back in Romans 2 verse 28, he said, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So there he's basically saying, when I say Jew, I'm not just talking about an ethnic kind of Jewish heritage. I'm not talking about your, your biology. I'm talking about something that's happening on the inside of you. So the same thing again in chapter 9, Romans 9, verse 6. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And then he goes into discussing the, the promise and faith and how we're saved by faith, which really lines up with what John said about, like, in John 1, like, John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So that lines up with what he's saying there. So what Paul, when he talks about a Jew and, and Israel... He's sometimes talking about the actual Jews, his brother, the Jews. He wishes they'd all be saved. And sometimes he's talking about the spiritual Israel, which includes everybody who believes in Jesus, who's been adopted and they're now called children of God, the spiritual Israel. 
we can get more clues of what Paul means by looking at earlier in the chapter in verse 12. He, he begins to look at this idea that it's not always going to be a small remnant. In verse 12, Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So he's talking about a fulfillment that's going to happen. And then in verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So he's talking about a future acceptance. And then in verse 23, and they also, if they, don't, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So he's talking about a future regrafting by what, though? By faith, by faith in Christ. And then in verse 24, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So it seems like Paul is piecing together a vision of a future redemptive plan of God that is not going to look like it does now. In what way? In the percentage of Jews versus Gentiles that are part of the church. Yes, right now many Gentiles have received the gospel. Yes, a few Jews have believed. But that's not the end of the story. So he's saying don't be arrogant about the fact that most of the Gentiles have rejected, but you, sorry, most of the Jews have rejected it, but you Gentiles are so great, you received it, so you're awesome, and, and the majority of the church is like, you know, 90% Gentile, so aren't we so cool? Don't get arrogant, because that isn't the end. At some point, in God's timing, many Jews will be grafted back in when they begin to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And then, this is the all Israel that Paul is talking about. So all Israel means both Jews and Gentiles united as children of God by faith. We've gone over this a lot, the fact that, like the verses I read, Paul talks about how just because you're a Jew physically, biologically, doesn't mean you're a Jew spiritually. And just because you belong to the state of Israel doesn't mean you belong to Israel in a spiritual sense. So Paul is saying, on the one hand, I do cry out for my brothers, the Jews, that are physically, biologically Jews. I want them to be saved. He is saying that. He's also saying, but in another sense, everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, you're all the children of God, and so this is all of Israel, and they will all be saved. And But there's a future time in which it's not going to be so imbalanced between how many Gentiles and Jews are in the church. That's what I think he's getting to here, is that there, there has been a partial hardening, a temporary time in which a very small number of Jews believe and the, Jew, and the Gentiles are ushering in by the thousands into the church, but it's not always going to be so one-sided. That's what I think he's getting at. That's the mystery that I think he's getting at. So in verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, meaning the Jews, are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the, of, of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are, irrevo- are irrevocable. So, yes, for the Gentiles' sake, God has done this. They rejected him so many times that he put a stop to that work there, and he's now focusing on the Gentiles for a while, for a good bit. And then at some point, he's going to, you know, okay, the Gentiles, there's a great number here. We're going to come back now and bring in more Jews. 
because they, they were God's chosen people. God still does love them. He still made many promises to them. And this is where you get into this idea of something called replacement theology, where some think that now Christianity has totally replaced everything about Israel. So if you go to the Old Testament, any promise that was promised to Israel is now our promise. There is no such thing anymore as a future for the nation of Israel. It's all just the church has replaced Israel. I don't see that that way, and it's because of verses like this, particularly where Paul is saying, in one sense, yes, we're all the spiritual Israel, but God still has promises to these people that he's going to fulfill. The main context here is Paul is saying, don't get arrogant about your salvation. Don't get arrogant if there aren't many Jews that are saved because there's going to be a time coming when many Jews are going to come back to the faith and they're going to be believing. That's the main kind of overarching theme that Paul's getting at. Don't get arrogant about it. So the future picture of the church will be one in which there are many Gentiles and many Jews that are united by their faith in Christ and this is the true Israel, the complete picture. Okay, so um, let's look at verse 30. Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. <clears throat> Again, the purpose of Paul in revealing these things was so the Gentiles in Rome would not get arrogant, even though at the present time they were being persecuted by the Jews, so it'd be easy. There's a couple of reasons why the Gentiles might really not be happy with the Jews. I mean, not just the fact that they, you know, they, they rejected their own Messiah, they ordered him to be crucified, but they're also persecuting the church. So they had many reasons to just be kind of angry towards the Jews. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the early church as well. If you look at, like, read a lot of the early church writings, there's, the church dealt with that a lot. There's a lot of that going on. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't get arrogant. Don't be that way. Um, the Gentiles had previously rejected God, right? And the Jews, look at them that way. They were angry at them for being godless and pagan and sinful. And yet, look at them now. Now they're saved. And now the Gentiles are treating the Jews kind of in the same way, being arrogant at them. And he says both the Jews and the Gentiles have been shut up at some point in disobedience, but both are going to find mercy when they come to Christ. And there is an important lesson for us in this that I want to point out. We really shouldn't be mocking or degrading or being spiteful or arrogant towards unbelievers. I mentioned this last week. I do see this a lot. I see a lot of Christians talking about the world in sort of pompous, arrogant, holier than thou. Can you believe these you know, idiots? How, how could anybody be so, so dumb as to do that thing? And you talk about the sin of the world as if like you've forgotten that you're only saved by grace and that you're, none of us are good enough and we're all deserving of hell. We ought to not do that. Um, and from this text, there are like at least three reasons that I, I see for why Paul is saying we shouldn't do that. <clears throat> First, if you really understand how desperately lost you were before you were saved by Christ, and when you really understand that it was by grace only that you were saved, by faith, not by any of your own works, that you don't have anything to boast about. You don't, you don't really have any leg to stand on when you try to brag about how great you are now that you came to Christ, if you really do believe, if you really believe the gospel and believe how bad sin is and believe what, what you were deserving of, then you know you're saved by grace only. You have no reason to be proud. <clears throat> the second reason is if you really understand this gospel and how lost you were, then you have to believe that God can do anything and save anyone. 
if you can look at your own sin for what it really was, and you can think, wow, God, how did God save me from all these things? Then that should cause within you a kind of humility and a strong belief that God can save anybody. No one is too lost or too bad or too evil to be saved. To write somebody off, to get angry and just write somebody off, is to be presumptuous about God's grace. It's as if you're deciding for God that this person isn't deserving of God's grace, you're no longer going to be a light in their life. You're going to write them off because they no longer deserve God's light. You're being presumptuous about God's grace when you do that. The third reason why we shouldn't be mocking or degrading, um, I'll first explain by an analogy. In business, it's often said, don't leave a job on bad terms because you never know if you're going to run into those people again somewhere else. It's not uncommon for you to have an enemy at one workplace, then you go work somewhere else, and all of a sudden he gets hired as your boss in that other company. And so you don't want to leave you know, on bad terms because of that. Well, in a Christian sense, you also shouldn't be mocking or degrading people because God might just go ahead and save them, and now they're your brother and sister for eternity, and you've treated them wrongly. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Like, don't, don't get arrogant against the Jews because God's going to bring a lot of them back to come in. And they're going to be your brothers and sisters. You shouldn't be treating each other that way. So those are three reasons why we shouldn't be mocking or degrading or being spiteful or arrogant towards, towards unbelievers. Okay, so Paul explains this mystery. He talks about the fact that the current state of things with so few Jews being saved is going to change. Um, I think it's great to look at the works that God is doing among the Jews today. It's great to, to, to think of the fact that God is going to fulfill these promises that God is going to save more Jews, that our church is going to have more Jews in it worldwide. I think those things are wonderful. How are we supposed to respond to these truths that Paul is talking about? As we come to the end of this whole section, we've been talking about Gentiles versus Jews for a couple of chapters now. It's been going on, and we're coming to the end of really this whole kind of theme where Paul's been explaining all of this stuff about how it's going to work, how the church should exist with Jews and Gentiles, what's the relationship between them, what does it mean, and is the law still valid? He's been going through all of these things. And now as he concludes, what what should our response be? And I think he gives us that example in verse 33. When he goes in and says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? This plan of God's for salvation, the way he's worked it out from the beginning of time, all through, you know, it's Abraham, it's Isaac, it's Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel. He's got these 12 sons. They have these tribes and all these conflicts, and they go into slavery, and they get redeemed, and they're going through, and they're struggling with idol worship, and God keeps disciplining them the whole time. The, the story of redemption is being carried by them. It's getting written down in scriptures. It's being preserved over time. Then the Messiah comes, and they were rejected their prophets, they rejected John the Baptist, they rejected Christ, and now God is turning to the Gentiles with this gospel the Jews carried for thousands of years. Now the Gentiles are benefiting from it, but that's not the end. The Jews are going to come back. They're all going to be saved. This whole big picture of God's redemption is so great and so grand that Paul's like, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, because you can't make this stuff up. It's kind of like what Paul is saying. You couldn't have made this stuff up. This is an amazing plan that God is doing. And, you know, it's, it's really hard for us sometimes in the moment to always know what God is doing. 
not only in our lives, but in this plan of salvation. And in the South, looking around at these churches like, God, why is there still so much crime when there's all these churches? What are you doing? And it's hard to always know the answer to that question. In this context, Paul is likely thinking about how the Jews are currently rejected, but God still has a great plan for them. And so he's, like, he's exalting and he's rejoicing in this and knowing that God is not distant. He's not apathetic. He's intentional. He's, he's purposeful. Um, he's, he's wise and he's full of knowledge. We can trust him in that. He has it all worked out from all eternity past. We don't see the big picture. He reveals parts of it to us in little pieces at a time as he sees fit. But how great those parts are. When we come to a chapter like this where we're learning more about the small pieces of God's plan for redemption that he has revealed, these small parts, even if they don't answer all of our questions, are great to think about and to meditate on. And um, I'll just close by saying that this is my hope for whenever we come together on Sundays that we have this kind of rejoicing as we study the Word of God together. Um, I always tell the story about once I was in the car with my kids, listening to a worship song. Um, I think the worship song was called God Be Praised. It goes on for a very long time, but the song starts out kind of okay. It's like, whatever, it's a tune. The words are like, yeah, okay, standard Christian lyrics. But then it kind of goes into this kind of bridge and kind of mellows out. Then it comes back. And when it comes back, all of a sudden there's like someone on chimes that are hitting these chimes. And the music's getting louder. And they're just singing the same lyric over and over again. How we've been redeemed and set free by the blood of the Lamb. God be praised. And it's very powerful, very emotional. I remember one of my kids hearing that and just going, Oh, I love God. And like from the mouth of a child, you know, that, that, oh, that sigh of just, God is great. I love God. And when I prepare the music and when I prepare the teaching, my hope and my prayer is that by the end of it, you're left with a sense of, I love God. Or, oh, I just, God is great. God is great. I want to I serve God. I want to know God. That's, that's why we do this. That's, that's in as far, like, no matter how long we do this and however we think about what are we doing in our worship service and like, you know, what kind of songs do we play and, and what should the order look like? In my back of my head, my question is always like, what is going to cause people to think God is great? Not man is great, not this church is great, not these systems really work well, or not, not this person plays an instrument super awesome. It's, I want everyone to think God is great. And so this last verse, for from him and through him and to him, are all things. From God and through God and to God are all things. So everything came from God, everything comes th uh, through God, and everything is to God or for God, for His glory. And that is like a great mission statement for your life. I'm from God, I want all that I do to be through God, and I want all that I do to be to God, for God, for His glory. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this uh, lesson today, this teaching. Um, I pray that you would allow your people to, to, be, to be encouraged, to be blessed, to want to follow you, to want to know you better. Help us to not become proud in our experience if we've gone with you for a longer amount of time. Help us to not be proud of what we know or think we know. Or if you've worked on us over the years and you've allowed us to clean up our lives and you've helped us to become better and, and not sin as much in certain ways, help us to not turn that into pride. 
but help us to ask you how we might be able to now use that experience and that, that hope that we have to help others that might be struggling to say, I, I am, I was as you are, and I can help you to be as I am in Christ. Helps to be the kind of people that are looking for opportunities to shine our light, and we're not shutting people out of our life that desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen.